Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a federal judge in Texas ruled Friday that former President Obama illegally launched the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program in 2012. DACA shields from deportation immigrants who were brought to the U.S. illegally as children and enables them to work. In this hour, we look at what the ruling means and what happens next and get a sense of how it's impacted the lives of some of the hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients and applicants. Forum is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tens of thousands of DACA applicants are now in limbo, and more than 600,000 current DACA recipients are experiencing the strain of having a program that allowed them to stay in the U.S. and work declared unlawful. On Friday, a federal judge in Texas ruled that President Obama illegally launched the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program in 2012, which protects undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children from deportation. For more on the consequences of Friday's decision, we're joined by Tom K. Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. Wong also served as an advisor to the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders under the Obama administration. Welcome, Tom K. Wong. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you with us, Tom. And can you tell us what Judge Andrew Hannon used as the basis for his ruling that DACA was unlawful on Friday? Yes. So Judge Hannon ruled that DACA is unlawful because the creation of DACA violated the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA. So the Administrative Procedures Act uh, requires public comments before uh, changing policy. And the ruling by Hainan, um, based on the APA, is a bit ironic because the last several years of the battle over DACA in the courts uh, saw DACA being preserved, uh, mostly because of the APA as well. So a bit of brief history, the Trump administration tried to end DACA, advocates um, Uh, made a legal argument that the way that the Trump administration tried to end DACA violated the APA. Therefore, uh, district courts all the way up to the Supreme Court said that DACA should stay. And now we have Judge Hainan relying on the same Administrative Procedure Act to essentially uh, rule that DACA is illegal. Mm, That that 
Obama did not do that as well. What is the immediate impact? I mentioned that some tens of thousands of DACA applicants are in limbo now. Yes. So the immediate impact is already being felt. So for those who are first-time applicants, they should have received a text notification from USCIS uh, saying that biometrics appointments are now canceled. So part of uh, applying for DACA not only includes a paper application, but once that's received by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, then individuals go in for biometrics. So, for example, to provide their fingerprints. So those appointments, uh, you know, important steps in the process are already being canceled. For the approximately 600,000 active DACA recipients, this means more uncertainty and more limbo. Uh, we had essentially four years of uncertainty over DACA under the Trump administration. And this particular ruling, although it does not say that current active DACA recipients will lose their status, it just adds to the sort of uncertainty that DACA recipients are living with on a day-to-day and just makes more vivid the importance of a permanent legislative solution for not just DACA recipients, but for undocumented immigrants more generally. Mm-hmm. I should quickly note that Judge Heenan, although he ruled based on the Administrative Procedure Act, that DACA was in fact illegal. Uh, he also took some language from the Supreme Court ruling over DACA from last year. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling from DACA last year, preserving DACA, talked a lot about reliance interests. In other words, this particular policy is so important in the lives of so many people that it cannot simply be terminated. Uh, So think about individuals in college, and as freshmen, they may have four more years left in college. Individuals who may have just purchased a home and may have a 30-year mortgage. Those are the kinds of reliance interests the Supreme Court noted. And Judge Hainan similarly um, talked about reliance interest in his opinion as why active DACA recipients should not just immediately lose their status. Mm, I see. Yes. And he also ordered the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to continue renewing permits for current enrollees and not to reject any renewals because of his order. But as you say, it still throws a lot of questions at current DACA recipients as well. And I wanted to invite a couple of them to the program now. Ju Hong is a DACA recipient and leadership council member at Immigrants Rising, which is an organization that helps undocumented young people achieve educational and career goals. Ju Hong, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me here. Also with us is Dulce Garcia, a DACA recipient, an immigration attorney, and executive director at Border Angels. Dulce Garcia, glad to have you with us as well. Thank you so much for the invitation. Juhong, if I could start with you, what was your reaction to the ruling? Yeah, when I heard the news, um, I was devastated and frustrated. And um, honestly, I was sick and tired. Um, I was uh, tired of hearing this news all over again. And I just had to um, uh, let out the frustration with other DACA recipients who are applying for DACA. And they all felt um, frustrated and angry. And this um, gave another affirmation that you know, DACA um, is temporary and we cannot live in this limbo every two years. Mm. And we want to 
really demand and urge the Biden administration and Congress to, you know, fulfill their promises and to deliver citizenship for every single one of us. And we need a permanent solution. And honestly, I'm really tired and I cannot live like this anymore um, with this fear and this anxiety and this stress. I think enough is enough. Um, I've been, you know, got this DACA since 2012 and I've been undocumented since 2001. And I'm 31 year old and um, I want to be peace of mind and live a normal life. But I think every yeah. two years, this gives me uh, dragging back and um, I want to continue to advocate uh, to ensure that this year we have this opportunity to push for a permanent solution and citizenship for all everyone. Dulce um, Garcia, how about for you? Similar to Ju Hong? Yes, very similar. It's sad, tired, frustrated, um, exhausted. All of these attacks in our communities have taken a toll on us physically and emotionally. The last few years have been very difficult. Uh, we were physically at the steps of the Supreme Court and we celebrated a victory last year when we received the opinion of the Supreme Court. And we thought with the change of administration, perhaps there was new hope renewed. And, you know, this this takes us back. It's unbelievable that we're in this place yet again, where our livelihoods are compromised, where the uncertainty is still there and our lives are still very much in limbo. And, you know, over 60,000 new applicants now have once more to be put on hold and their livelihoods put on hold. DACA allowed so many of us to apply for opportunities we never even imagined. You know, as an, as an attorney, I'm able to step into the courts of the immigration uh, courts and, and represent clients. And I never dreamed of that. And I want the younger folks to have that. And when I do speaking engagements with high schoolers, you know, I tell them, dream big, dream me unimaginable. Then here we are again, where I have to explain to them, to these folks that at the, their applications were pending to, to hold strong, to stay mm. strong and, and to give them hope all over again. It is exhausting personally and I know as a community, we're tired of it. And at the same time, we have to reassure ourselves yet again, that we do have a strong voice, that we have a strong collective, that we have put in the work to finally get a path to citizenship. It's long overdue, as my colleague was saying, we've been waiting for a long, long time. Some of us are no longer kids. And it's, it's amazing that we're still in this position where we have to defend our lives yet again in this place that we consider our home and have considered our home for decades. And Juhong, in your case, I imagine you must have been pretty worried when the decision came down because you were still waiting for renewal of your work permit. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, my DACA got expired on July 7, 2021, and I fell out of status. And this never happened to me before. Um, and overnight, I lost my job and I lost my health insurance and uh, felt frustrated and angry. 
and I, you know, let this, my frustration to the social media. And I came to realize that there are hundreds of thousands of other individuals dealing with a similar situation or had the level of fear and anxiety of losing their DACA or DACA make it delayed. And I learned that nearly 100,000 DACA new applicants and DACA renewals uh, has, has not been on process as of March uh, 31st. Um, and I think it's continued increasing over time. And I did a, I had to advocate myself and publicly come out, ask for support. And um, last Wednesday, uh, with the help of community members and friends uh, calling uh, my U.S. representatives on my behalf. Um, for the past 72 hours, we called nearly 600 calls. And uh, with that three days campaign, um, USCIS contacted me directly on the phone and that my DACA got approved. And while I'm very appreciative to all my friends and community members, uh, who helped me expedite the process, but it is very unfortunate and very frustrating the fact that I have to advocate for myself and I have to uh, be out like this mm. to get my DACA renewed. And yes, there are I... other, a lot of people are dealing with this situation and we need to address this USCIS backlog as well too. Yes, I understand you had applied in, in March at your usual time, but the backlog is what caused this lapse. Um, and it sounds like it was quite stressful. Listeners, if you as well were affected by this ruling because you are a DACA recipient or applicant, you can share your stories at 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the future of the DACA program after a Texas court ruling last Friday. And we're joined by Tom Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. Also with us is Dulce Garcia, a DACA recipient, immigration attorney, and executive director at Border Angels. And Ju Hong, a DACA recipient and leadership council member at Immigrants Rising. And you, our listeners, are with us. Have you or your family been affected by the DACA ruling? Are you also an immigrant who is wondering about its implications for broader immigration reform? Or what questions do you have about what has happened Friday and the future of DACA and immigration reform? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at KQED. Org. And Dulce Garcia, we were hearing from Jew just about how it, it just reflects one of the many ways that having this status that is tenuous and must constantly be renewed, that it has a lot of impacts. What do you feel like are the impacts that are, are often less known on DACA recipients? This is certainly one of them. The, the emotional 
uh, told that we, we have every time that we have to send our application and hope that it gets processed in time before we lose our jobs is a big one. Um, you know, when we applied for DACA, I applied in 2014. I was hesitant. I didn't trust the government. Um, I, I, I wasn't sure whether it would be approved and we would be turning over all of our information. So that in its own, it, it, it's, um, it's a little bit scary to apply for the first time. So I understand why some folks hesitated to apply. And once you apply, we know that the program can be, can be uh, destroyed at any moment as it was during the Trump administration. When I applied in 2014, they told me it would be political suicide for anyone to attack the program. Yet here we are. We're not only the prior administration attacked it and we had to step up and sue the federal government ourselves, but also now with the state of Texas uh, doing its own lawsuit. And we don't know what's going to happen with the program. Yet here we are where we have turned over all of our information. The government keeps tabs on us. Every two years we have to go in for biometrics where they fingerprint us. They make sure that we have been complying with laws, uh, in particular with criminal laws. And so this, this um, idea that we're not U.S. citizens, that we're not legal permanent residents, that we're less than, it's, it takes a toll on us. And we're not, we don't often talk about the medical, the uh, mental health um, aspects of, of, of having to undergo through this process every two years. Yes, what I'm hearing from both you and Jew is that there has been a cumulative impact. As Jew, you were saying you've had DACA since 2012. It sounds like you didn't expect that you would continue to have DACA, meaning that you thought there would be some kind of a more permanent solution by 2021. Yes, and and with this news, uh, with the decision, um, it it kind of brings me back uh, where we have to we're back to square one, and this is absolutely frustrating uh, when um, I have to renew my DACA every two years, and the fact that my DACA got delayed and um, I lost my job overnight and lost my health insurance. It is uh, very significant because um, I'm dealing with uh, autoimmune disease where I need to do regular treatment. And Mm. it's a very expensive cost. And I need a health insurance to pay for all my expenses. And without any regular treatment, I have a high risk of getting colon cancer. And it's a very serious um, health condition that I'm dealing with on top of all the stress and anxiety that I have to deal with every two years. And this is not acceptable. And I've been hearing so many community members that their statuses are expiring or they want to apply, but they're nervous or they're scared. And this is not right. And this is inhumane. And we really have to hold about Biden administration as well as Congress accountable to not only address this uh, uh, DACA, uh, but also really find a permanent uh, solution. And I think that this year we have a real chance uh, through the budget reconciliation. And I think in the next couple of weeks and months ahead, um, a lot of individuals like myself um, and organizations will continue to advocate and push to ensure that the immigration language is included in the budget reconciliation that has a pathway of citizenship for all 11 million undocumented immigrants so that I don't need to continue to live 
like this in limbo every two years. Ju Hong, DACA recipient and leadership council member at Immigrants Rising. Dulce Garcia, DACA recipient and immigration attorney, immigration attorney and executive director at Border Angels. Really appreciate having you both on. Thank you. And Thank you. I, I want to turn back to you, Tom K. Wong. Ju Hong was mentioning reconciliation there and so on. So before we get into the paths forward, I am curious if you could continue to take us back a little bit and remind us why DACA was established the way it was in 2012. Yeah, I, you have an all-star lineup today and a little bit about the history of DACA. Um, you know, advocates like Ju helped make DACA a reality. If folks think back to uh, 2010, the the DREAM Act was in Congress. Uh, It uh, narrowly failed, uh, not because of Republicans who typically are opposed to uh, legal status for undocumented immigrants, but because the Democratic caucus couldn't hold the line. And so the failure of the DREAM Act in 2010 followed by a looming re-election of uh, President Obama in early 2012, combined with potential Republican DREAM Act legislation being introduced by then uh, Republican presidential hopeful Marco Rubio, uh, that was the political backdrop for the announcement of DACA. But Jew himself uh, really uh, provided a catalyst when President Obama had a speaking engagement and Jew interrupted that speaking engagement by calling on the president to use prosecutorial discretion to protect undocumented young people. And so advocates like Jew helped make DACA a reality. And, you know, advocates like Dulce also in suing the federal government have kept DACA in place. So we have the announcement of DACA on June 15th, 2012. Uh, Uh, That was the political backdrop. And what Ju just mentioned in terms of budget reconciliation, that seems to be the most viable path forward. Right now, we know that there are uh, 50 Democrats in the Senate and 50 Republicans uh, with Vice President Harris being the tiebreaker. Uh, The filibuster makes it difficult to imagine getting 60 votes, uh, which is needed to uh, invoke cloture, which ends a filibuster. Uh, So it's hard to imagine 60 votes for something like legal status, even for uh, undocumented young people. Uh, We see this in the voting uh, patterns of Republican senators and House members. So this isn't an ideological thing to say. This is an empirical thing to say. And so the budget reconciliation process lowers the threshold to 50 plus one. So those 50 Democratic senators plus that one tie-breaking vote from Vice President Harris can mean legal status for not just undocumented young people, but also those who have temporary protective status, uh, undocumented essential farm workers, and others. So we should look for, if we're going to see any action from Congress on immigration, something before the end of uh, uh, summer, uh, before August recess, or if there is some kind of continuing resolution, which kind of punts Uh, the ball a few months down the road, then the next opportunity would be in fall. Uh, So again, the budget reconciliation process, if it's going to happen, it will happen soon.
So the but if you can get something into a budget reconciliation bill, you only need 50 votes. But it does require that you have to show that DACA has more than an incidental budgetary impact to be in a reconciliation bill. What's the status of that? I mean, do you think that there's a strong argument that it does? Yeah, fantastic question. So my colleagues and I at the Center for American Progress, the National Immigration Law Center, and United We Dream have been surveying DACA recipients uh, like Dulce, like Jew, uh, sometimes with the help of Dulce and Jew, uh, pretty much since the inception of DACA. So what we've been able to show are DACA's fiscal and economic impacts, and they are overwhelmingly positive. We have asked DACA recipients to be exceptional based on the requirements for receiving DACA in the first place. And our survey data show that DACA recipients are in fact exceptional. Uh, Part of what we are seeing is that DACA recipients are among the most educated subgroup of the population in the United States. So part of DACA requires at least a high school diploma, GED or equivalent. And many DACA recipients have now that they are uh, hitting their strides in their lives and their career, have a bachelor's degree or higher uh, at a higher percentage than the rest of the population, and even at a higher percentage than the naturalized citizen population, which is the most educated subgroup uh, when looking at immigration status uh, behind DACA recipients now. So what we see in the data are that DACA recipients are using their education to make tremendous contributions to the economy. We see that 63% have moved to a job with a better pay post DACA, that 53% have moved to jobs with better working conditions. Uh, Similar percentages report moving to jobs that better fit their education and training and their long-term career goals. We have seen uh, 110% in our latest 2020 survey increase in hourly wages because of DACA. Uh, With those hourly wages, we're seeing increased tax contributions, both at federal, state, and local levels. DACA recipients are also using their increased earnings to make a larger economic footprint in terms of buying homes and buying cars and other large purchases, which we know also lead to increased sales tax revenue. Uh, We also see that 84% report that Their increased earnings have helped them become more financially independent, have helped their families financially. And now we also see about three out of 10 saying that their increased earnings are helping them take care of an elderly parent or relative. So in addition to these sort of economic uh, impacts, we also have seen during the pandemic that six out of 10 DACA recipients who we surveyed who were working at the time of the survey reported having to work during the pandemic due to being an essential worker. So you can imagine not just those healthcare support occupations, but also we see, as Dulce mentioned earlier, an increasing number of professionals, uh, including doctors who are on the front lines fighting the pandemic. Hmm. So the sort of fiscal and broader economic impact argument, I think, is one that is, is clear and not even Judge Heenan Uh, tried to take on in his opinion. Tom K. Wong is Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. You, our listeners, are with us, and let me go to caller Tim in San Francisco. Hi, Tim. Hi, good morning. 
I'm going to take a, I'm, I'm going to take the opposing view to DACA being illegal, um, to being legal, and I don't think it should be legal. And here's why: um, what I never hear is where the responsibility really lies, and the responsibility lies on the parents of the children who they brought here. They gambled with their lives. They gambled with being able to stay in the United States. Now, if they want to be mad at somebody, don't be mad at the United States for the laws that we have. And also, there are tens of thousands of people who come here legally every year, every year, who want to get into this country and apply legally. So I know you're living here at the same time. And the other excuse that I hear is, oh, if we move back to the country of origin that we were brought here from, that I won't know what to do when I get back there. Well, I moved out to California not knowing anybody, and I figured it out. So all I'm saying is I don't believe DACA should be a legal, uh, um, a legal program. Okay. At, not at this point. Not by, I mean, under the law, it is not. They came here. They are not citizens. Tim, let me get and, a reaction from, from Tom Wong to what you're saying. Tom Wong, Tim's sentiment that uh, is not entirely he's not alone in the sense that there are critics who question why the u.s should give legal status or a path to citizenship at all and talk about the parents and the parents or other people other family members bringing kids here being the ones who are at fault i'm wondering first what your reaction is to what tim is saying but also wanted to talk with you about more broadly there are people who have felt whether or not they agree that the program should exist or not that it is vulnerable to legal challenges. Yeah, so we should remind ourselves that DACA is a policy, not a law. So when we think about changing laws, that's why so much emphasis now is being placed on Congress to provide a legislative solution for the status of undocumented young people and for undocumented immigrants more generally. So to the caller's point, there are a few things that came up. So one is about the sort of onus being on parents. And I have heard that uh, that is a common sort of refrain in the immigration debate uh, from that particular point of view. But I've said on this show and others in the past that we can reflect who we are as a country through our immigration policies, because our immigration policies help us sort of delimit the extent of our hospitality. And I don't think that we as a country are one, or, or as a country, we are not uh, sort of prone to pit children against parents. And when we think about what that, what the logical conclusion of that line of thinking means is that we're talking about family separation at that point, that if we are going to blame parents, then either we're putting them in jail or we're asking parent, uh, children to leave with their parents back to their respective countries of origin, uh, where if a child has an opportunity to stay, they in fact will. So hence family separation. And I don't think we as a country have tolerated family separation, even on the, that particular side of the political debate very well, as was shown during the Trump era. Um, the second yes. point on, uh, sorry, if I can just say one more thing about 
not just moving and uncertainty of moving because the caller's example was moving to California. That's where, uh, you know, the caller hypothetically would be speaking the same language, same culture, et cetera. But we've also surveyed DACA recipients about the risk of potentially deporting DACA recipients. And it's not just about starting over in a new place, but many DACA recipients don't even know the language of their respective home countries. It is a different culture, a place that they have never stepped foot in other than having been born there. So concerns about physical safety, homelessness, food insecurity, and the fact now that among DACA recipients who have children, over nine out of 10 of those children are US citizen children. And so I would just ask the caller to think about what the logical conclusion is if we are going to say it is the parent's fault and so what happens next, not just for the parents, not just for the DACA recipients, but also think about those U.S. citizen children or U.S. citizen spouses as DACA recipients are starting to root themselves more deeply into American society by building families. I did see that stat in your survey where you were talking about some 25 percent of DACA recipients are parents and do think about being separated from their kids if DACA is illegal. We're talking with Tom K. Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. We're looking at a ruling Friday that declared DACA unlawful. What happens, what happens next after that and getting a sense of how it's impacted the lives of some of the hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients and applicants. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation at 866-733-6786. You can also leave your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. We're talking about the future of the DACA program after a Texas court ruling last Friday. We're joined by Tom Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. And you, our listeners, are with us sharing your comments and questions. This listener writes, DACA recipients are productive members of our society. Why and how their very presence should continue to be resisted and blocked is an ongoing source of confusion and frustration to me. What are their opponents afraid of? This listener writes, thousands of youth have sent in applications for DACA since December, paying millions of dollars in filing fees that continue to be deportable because now their applications will be set aside. Michael tweets, DACA recipients are here through no fault of their own. Doesn't their situation evoke sympathy from Republicans? Interestingly, Tom Wong, though, support for DACA is bipartisan. There was a Pew report, I believe, back in June that showed that some 70 percent of Americans believe that the DACA program should be in place for for, uh, people who were brought to the U.S. as kids. Um, And in addition to that, there are quite a few Republicans and Republican-leaning people who also share that same idea. So interestingly, you know, one of the things that the Biden administration is doing, in addition to sort of giving the nod for Congress to pursue reconciliation, they're also saying that they recognize some of the legal vulnerabilities, right, and that they need to fortify the program in some way, that they that 
they do need to do things to make it better than the process that they went through in 2012? Yeah, well, I think the the ultimate goal uh, for the Biden administration is to see Congress provide a legislative solution. In the absence of that, I think what the Biden administration is doing now is reviewing the court, uh, uh, the opinion uh, from Judge Hainan and trying to figure out how to potentially have a DACA 2.0 should that be uh, necessary if Congress is unable to act. And I think the blueprint laid out by Hainan is that should there be some uh, DACA 2.0, then it would need to go through public comments under the Administrative Procedures Act. Well, let me go to caller Patty in Fremont. Hi, Patty. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. I'm saying that those that have already received the uh, approval and have been here as DACA, DACA recipients instead of going through this application process every two years, they can possibly be granted permanent stay. However, we are having this continuous pouring of um, people across our borders, especially from the South, parents who even ch send their children ahead of them. So we have to put a date as to when this program stops. And, you know, so that we can have a control. Otherwise, it is going to be in perpetuity. And that's really not fair for people who wait legally in lines. So Tom that's Wong? My oh, Patty, thanks. Tom Wong, your response to Patty. So another common sort of refrain in the immigration debate has to do with lines. And it should be um, uh, broadcast far and wide that there aren't very many uh, sort of identifiable lines when it comes to waiting for admissions into the United States uh, through our immigration system as it currently exists. There is an alphabet soup of different kinds of visas, uh, you know, depending on how long it takes for a visa uh, to become processed. One can find themselves uh, out of eligibility for what they applied for and would then have to look for eligibility into a different program. So in a similar way that there's an alphabet soup of U.S. immigration policy in the, in the number of visas that exist, uh, what that means is that there's really no, you know, uh, identifiable line for individuals to get in and wait in. There are different migratory circumstances that individuals face. We can imagine the H-1B high-skilled uh, uh, worker uh, who is trying to enter the country in that route. We can imagine those fleeing uh, persecution and seeking refuge in the United States as a different route. And for DACA recipients, we find themselves uh, you know, having to navigate this policy that uh, is unique, that was created uh, and tailored to the specific circumstances of undocumented young people uh, who were brought to the country as an, uh, at a young age. And so what our immigration policies can best do and what public opinion hopefully can increasingly recognize is that we have immigration policies tailored to specific migratory circumstances. And so there is no singular line, but if we sort of keep in mind that those migratory circumstances are what we may want to be attuned to rather than this hypothetical line, then that public opinion that supports something like the DREAM Act for undocumented young people may be felt in a different way among members of Congress, because also as a matter of politics, national support for any particular policy 
doesn't necessarily translate into political will for individual members of Congress, whether they're in the House or in the Senate, who have their own uh, constituencies that they're worried about. Well, let me bring into the conversation Danae Joseph, an immigrant rights advocate and DACA recipient. Danae Joseph, really glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, one of the things that you've noted is that dreamers are not often seen as Black or Asian. Why do you right. say that it's important for Black dreamers to be more visible? Well, Black undocumented people in the United States of America, out of the 11.5 million undocumented people that exist in this country, only 619,000 that we know of are actually undocumented and Black. And the reason that that number matters is it might not completely be accurate. And the reasoning is in order for you to be counted, you must first have a seat at the table. And for many Black immigrants, Black immigrants tend not to want to share their stories, right, because of a fear of what might happen if we do share our stories. It took me more than a decade in order to share my own. And it's important that we highlight the intersectionality of being both Black and undocumented because of the way in which Black immigrants are disproportionately impacted by this immigration system, right? By Raices count, Black immigrants tend to have 50% higher bonds when placed in detention centers, not to mention more susceptible to deportation Deportation as a result of their status, right? We saw a letter come out of the T. Don Hutto facility around last year by Cameroonian women in which they spoke about the horrid conditions in which they were facing at the hands of people who were detaining them. So they're more susceptible to violence as a result, not only of status, but as a result of our race and our ethnicities. And I understand you were born in Belize and brought to the U.S., at the age of seven, you've also said that DACA is not the ceiling. And I'm wondering what you mean by that. Are you thinking about the other 11 million or so undocumented immigrants when you say that? Absolutely. For me, the reason that I say DACA is not the ceiling is because if we think back to the origins of deferred action for childhood arrivals when signed under the Obama administration, DACA was actually meant to be a placeholder, something temporary until Congress could work out more permanent for the 11.5 million undocumented people in this country. The reason why it's important that we move beyond DACA is because it's clearly not sustainable. While we benefit, while we are grateful for the program, we are also left to plan our lives at this point, not even on a two-year by two-year basis. I had to apply for renewal a year outside of my expiration date. The reason that I had to do that was in order to try to bypass the backlog that 81,000 people are now dealing with, right? It's important that we have something more permanent where we can show our full contributions to this nation that we all call home because it is our home as well. Let me go to caller Petra in Oakland. Hi, Petra. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm very happy you guys are here, all DACA recipients, regardless of status, whatever. And I'm wondering, how can I help? Can I is there a tutoring program? Is there babysitting programs? Because I find it, I imagine it's very stressful to have to go through this and also have like times of uncertainty where you lose a job or where you can't go on like you have been going on. Is there like an organization where I can sign up and volunteer and like mm. tutor your kids? Um, I don't know, babysit your kids, um, help you with college, whatever. I'd love to help. Danae, any thoughts for Petra? 
absolutely, Petra. Thank you so much for asking that crucial question about what can be done. And to that, I would say check out organizations like BAJI, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Check out organizations like the Haitian Bridge Alliance, Immigrants Rising, and the incredible work that they're doing in order to support undocumented entrepreneurs who might not now be given the opportunity to work by way of their employment authorization cards. And so they're left to find other means in order to provide for themselves and their families. And in addition to supporting organizations, I think it's crucial if you see a way for you to support monetarily by way of giving to the mutual aid funds that you might have within your community. It is so difficult. We all just navigated and we're still navigating a global pandemic in which people have lost their jobs, are no longer gainfully employed, and as a result are left to fend for scraps. It's important that we remember undocumented people are our essential workers, right? So if you can you know, dispel any misconceptions within your communities, within your families, your friend groups about undocumented people and the role that we play in our society, it's crucial. Well, thanks, Petra, for the question. Let me also go quickly to Erica in Santa Cruz. Hi, Erica. Hi. Um, I love that last question. I hope you'll post those resources on online so we can get them because they were said too, too fast. I just want to say that, you know, I am white. I was born here. I've lived here all my life. I've been lucky to travel to some other countries, and I am ashamed of this country. I'm really embarrassed to be an American. We are so selfish and greedy. We, this country has so much. And I, I just do not understand that caller who called and said, oh, the DACA should be mad at their parents. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't feel very articulate because it's, this issue is very upsetting to me. But I... I want to know what those organizations are so that I can help. I can't give financially, but I can give time. And um, and I welcome every single DACA person. And I don't care if they're a physician or they sweep a street or they are unable to do anything. They're human beings and they deserve to be here. Well, so, Erica, I thank you show. for sharing your opinion. And uh I also want to thank Danae Joseph, immigrants' rights advocate and DACA recipient and vice president for the Black Los Angeles Young Democrats, a board member for the Center for Law and Social Policy. Thanks for being on, Danae. Thank you so much for having me. We're also talking with Tom K. Wong, associate professor of political science and founding director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. This also happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations and uh to learn more about how you can help your public radio station, please do so. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. And we're talking about the future of the DACA program after a Texas court ruling last Friday. And one of the questions that we are getting, Tom Wong, is who brought DACA before this Texas judge? How does a Texas federal judge come to rule on an issue the Supreme Court has already ruled on? And is the ACLU stepping in? Do you just want to quickly give this listener the origins? Yeah, so we know that DACA was an Obama-era policy. Uh, when Trump was elected, there was some uh, hope that the Trump administration would keep DACA. 
but in 2017, uh, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, announced a plan to terminate DACA. That led to several lawsuits being filed against the then Trump administration, uh, which prevailed in courts, uh, thereby preserving DACA. But that led the state of Texas and some other states to then sue the Trump administration as well, uh, this time not to preserve DACA, but to end DACA. And that was in 2018. Uh, we may be reminded about a Supreme Court ruling on DACA last summer. Uh, that Supreme Court ruling was very narrow, so it didn't rule on the legality of the DACA program altogether, which is why this particular case uh, um, uh, was ongoing. And so we saw on Friday the culmination of uh, this case in the ruling by Hainan, finding that DACA uh, is, in his opinion, illegal. And... A couple more comments coming in from listeners. Guillermo writes, it took me 31 years to get citizenship as a refugee. That had its own challenges without me being a DACA recipient. I'm going to call my representative and advocate for DACA protections from Congress. Jessica tweets, please remind your listeners that most people with DACA have no path to permanent legal status. Our immigration law hasn't been reformed in over a generation. Their inability to gain permanent legal status is not their fault. Tom, you have talked about how Congress, the reconciliation bill, is one of the best channels, I guess, for people who support DACA to try to get something that is more secure passed by Congress. But at the same time, this will wind its way through the courts. Can you talk about the prospects for this? The Biden administration has promised to appeal the decision, which means that it will likely go to the Fifth Circuit. What do you think are its prospects there? The so I, I think there are two questions there. So in terms of the prospects for the Biden administration's appeal, um, this is really trying to read tea leaves, and I've never shied away from trying to read tea leaves. And I don't think that there is that much optimism that the Biden administration will succeed on appeal, uh, meaning Hainan's ruling will stand. Uh, what that does is create more impetus for Congress to act. So the second question about prospects in Congress, I think if we are going to see something, it'll be through reconciliation. The reason why is because the prospects for any piece of legislation uh, to pass Congress are low, not just in the immigration space, but across issue areas. Uh, right now, it's not so much the House, but it is a 50-50 split in the Senate. And so that 50-50 split means that if uh, Republicans are on one side, Democrats are on the other, then a tie-breaking vote goes to uh, Vice President Harris. Um, that only works in uh, different sort of uh, circumstances if there is no uh, filibuster. Because if there's a filibuster, then that means 60 votes are needed to invoke a uh, something called cloture, which ends a filibuster. And so procedurally, we need 60 votes in the Senate before we can actually see a bill turned into law, uh, assuming that there is a majority support in the House and a president willing to sign a bill. Yeah. And so the budget reconciliation process uh, sidesteps the 60 vote threshold 
uh, by attaching legislation on different issue areas to budget questions. Uh, we have a lower threshold on budgets because it's so important to the functioning of our country. Uh, so it's just a 50 plus one threshold. So if we can see something happen on immigration, it will likely happen through budget reconciliation uh, because of that lower threshold. And for that listener comment, yes, I think we should all be reminded that even if DACA were to prevail on appeal, or if there were a 2.0 version of DACA, that there is no authority under the exercise of prosecutorial discretion to grant permanent legal status uh, to DACA recipients or other undocumented young people. That authority rests with Congress by changing laws, for example, by providing an earned pathway to citizenship for undocumented young people. So that's what makes the next moves in Congress so important to follow for the 600,000 uh, young people with DACA. So ironically, almost this ruling could be what really ends up putting in place something that is more secure and more permanent. Tom K. Wong, thank you so much for talking with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. Professor Tom K. Wong of Political Science at UC San Diego. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Blanco Torres for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.